um, what you would like to hear spoken on. About a week ago, I remember asking um, our family, what is the one food item that you cannot go without on Thanksgiving? What's that one thing that you just have to have come Thursday uh, you cannot do without? What's the one thing that is on your Thanksgiving menu? Is it the turkey? Is it the, some of you don't like turkey. How many of you don't like turkey? There's a lot, there's probably more. Okay, all right. Not a whole lot in my family like turkey. Maybe it's mashed potatoes. Maybe it's the noodles. Maybe it's the uh, sweet potato casserole or the corn casserole or the, uh, uh, the rolls or maybe it's the uh, pumpkin pie or uh, making some of you hungry right now, aren't I? Or some of you are sick and tired of turkey already. So you're saying, please stop. What's that one thing? With me, it'd probably be uh, mashed potatoes and my mother-in-law's noodles. If you've ever had Mert's noodles, uh, she could make a living out of that. She could uh, really good. Now, if you could, just for a second, go back with me on Thursday. And as you're sitting around your Thanksgiving table, and I ask you this question. Maybe some of you have done this. You've gone around and given thanks or what you're most thankful for, but... I ask you this question, what's the one thing in life that you cannot do without? What's the one thing in life that you must have, the one thing that perhaps you are most thankful for? I would imagine many of you would mention you're thankful for your health. And if you've gone through anything difficult and your health has been restored, you know how important your health is. This has been an interesting year for our family. Uh, you're most, maybe you're most thankful for your spouse, your kids, your family, your friends, uh, your parents. Maybe there's some material blessings you're most thankful for. And all of these things that we indeed should be thankful for, but I may have said this before, but they all have one thing in common. Everything I just mentioned, they all have one thing in common, health. Spouse, children, family, friends, parents, they are not guaranteed to anyone, are they? At any moment, we can lose our health. We can, some of you have lost spouses, children, family. They're not guaranteed to anyone past the here and now. And I have to be honest with you, for this past week, there's just been one word that just keeps resonating in my mind and in my heart. And the more I thought about, the more I realized that there's really one thing that I cannot do without in my life. The one thing that I have to have the most of, more than anything, is that right there. The grace of God. Now, whenever I said that, some of you may have thought, well, that's a churchy word, that's a churchy term, and we, those are the kind of things that we say in church, okay, I mean, grace of God, good. But if you stop and think about it, which is what I want to do for a few moments today, is there anything else in life that we as believers should be more thankful for than the grace of God? The definition of grace is favor, kindness, exemption from a penalty, a, a reprieve, so to speak. 
And if you think about it, church, this morning, and everything, and I mean everything, everything that we have in life is because of God's grace. Your ability to drive, your ability to work, to have and enjoy families is because God has allowed it. That slow car that was in front of you this morning on the way to church and you get frustrated with, that very well could be a demonstration of God's grace because you never know that God is using that car to keep you from being in an accident. Or if you're like Shirley Wallach a few weeks ago, God's grace covered you in an accident as well to where the grandkids were not harmed as well. Our ability to walk and to see, to hear, to smell, to feel, to touch, to enjoy the food at Thanksgiving. Everything we enjoy in life is all because God has allowed it. We don't think like that, do we? We think that we have rights. We have certain We do have privileges, but we have rights as well. We don't think of them as things that we really don't deserve or that we shouldn't have. And In Francis Chan's book, Crazy Love, I read this week, he said this, In heaven exists a being who decides whether or not I take another breath. Think about that. In heaven right now there is a being, capital B, who decides whether you and I literally take a breath. You may have heard the statement, but by the grace of God, there go I. We just think about this, the grace of God. Ephesians 1, 7, He, capital H, He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, how can we forget this one? For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, and not by works, lest anyone should boast. In Genesis, we see where God is fed up with the rebellious people that were on the earth, and they had turned their back on God, And believe it or not, God was wanting to destroy mankind forever until we hear he said that God found grace in the eyes of the Lord. But Noah, thank you, Dave. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Salvation in Jesus Christ is all because of God's grace. But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Talking to the Christians, the Jewish believers regarding the Gentile believers. God's grace offers anyone a new life and a second chance. Praise the Lord. Oh, how we so easily forget the grace of God. We know the story. Some of us have seen women like her around. 
hanging out in those not-so-nice places, dressed and acting not-so-ladylike on the corner. And if we're honest with ourselves, when we have been around an atmosphere like that, our thoughts were probably not too loving but more judgmental. John chapter 8 tells of such a woman. Perhaps this woman only knew of one way of life. Perhaps she was born into a family of prostitution. If you were to talk to her, she may say some things like this. Hey, there are worse ways to make a living. I'm able to provide things for my kids that I never had. Or maybe I know there's a better way to make a living, better occupations, but at least I'm not like one of those Pharisees or Sadducees. They're just a bunch of hypocrites. With me, what you see is what you get. The Bible tells us of a woman like this. And then it tells us that on that fateful day, the silence in the midst of her sinful act is interrupted by the sound of her front door being busted open. And pouring through her door is a mob yelling things like harlot and adulterer, sinner, stone her, kill her. They drag her out of the house, probably by her hair. And she's thrown to the ground and her eyes are still perhaps trying to squint, trying to readjust from the darkness of the inside to the brightness of the sun. She's just trying to figure out what on earth is happening. It doesn't take long before the reality of the situation sets in and she cannot believe the situation that she's in. The fear of death immediately engulfs her. Her body even begins to experience a perhaps state of shock. As her eyes adjust, she looks up and she looks around and there's 20 and 30, maybe 50, 60 men seething at her and in their hands are large, sharp Rocks and they're poised and in a position just ready to unleash them on her. And all they need is the word. Then she notices someone not far from her and he's the only one in the crowd not foaming at the mouth. Only one in the crowd that does not have a rock in his hand. And what's odd, she can't figure out what he's doing because it looks like he's kind of playing in the dirt. His finger moving around, and some people think he's writing something in the dirt. She doesn't know. The mob is asking this man, what should they do? And after a few seconds, which seem more like an eternity to her, this man says the words that will be forever etched in her mind. You all know what he said. He said, he who among you is without sin, let him Throw the first stone. Silence. Silence all around. Then, like the sound of a distant rain that turns into a thunderous hail, the rocks just begin to drop all over the place. 
And one by one, every man leaves the scene of the crime, all except one. This woman is still trembling, still in shock over what just happened. Did she know what took place? Did she know what just happened? Oh, yeah. She knew. She knew that her life had just been spared. And for the first time, perhaps the first time in her life, she had experienced grace. But more importantly, she had experienced God's divine grace. And she would never be the same again. Folks, this woman is a mere reflection of you and me. Do you get that? This woman is just a mere reflection of you and me. Some of you say, Pastor Brock, that's ridiculous. I mean, I've not been a perfect person. I get that, but I've not done anything near what this woman of the night has done. Let me remind you that with God there are no levels of sin. Society puts different levels on sin and on different acts, but not God. Sin is sin no matter what level we put on it. Your heart and my heart was just as black, just as evil, just as immoral as that woman. And the Bible tells us that you and I deserve death. Romans 5, 12, and 18. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin... And thus death spread to all men because all sinned. But therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's, capital M, you got that, capital M, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. I didn't make the rules, but the Bible tells us that we are all guilty as charged because of what Adam and Eve had done. Praise the Lord, because of what one man did on the cross, we all now have justification through Jesus Christ. And it's all because of the grace of God. Yeah. Oh, let's shout it from the rooftops this morning. Through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, the grace of God has reached down and offered all of mankind a second chance, even though we don't deserve it. Some of you may have heard this story before. There once was a man named George Thomas pastor in a small New England town. One Easter Sunday morning, he came to the church carrying a rusty, bent old bird cage and set it beside the pulpit. Eyebrows were raised, and as if in response, Pastor Thomas began to speak. And he said this, I was walking through town yesterday when I saw a young boy coming toward me swinging this bird cage. On the bottom of the cage were three little wild birds shivering with cold and fright. I stopped the lad and asked, 
What do you have there, son? Just some old birds, came the reply. What are you going to do with them? I'm going to take them home and have fun with them, he answered. I'm going to tease them and pull out their feathers and make them fight. I'm going to have a real good time. But you'll get tired of those birds sooner or later. What will you do with them then? Oh, I've got some good cats, he said. They like birds. They'll, they'll take them. Let's give them to the cats. The pastor was silent for a moment. How much do you want for those birds, son? Huh? Why, you don't want them birds, mister? They're just plain old field birds. They don't sing. They ain't even pretty. How much? The pastor asked again. The boy sized up the pastor as if he were crazy, and he said, $10? The pastor reached in his pocket and took out a $10 bill. He placed it in the boy's hand, and in a flash, the boy was gone. The pastor picked up the cage and gently carried it to the end of the alley where there was a tree in a grassy spot. Setting the cage down, he opened the door, and by softly tapping the bars, persuaded the birds out, setting them free. Well, that explained the empty bird cage on the pulpit, and then the pastor began to tell this story. One day, Satan and Jesus were having a conversation. Satan had just come from the Garden of Eden, and he was gloating and boasting. Yes, sir, I just caught a world full of people down there, set me a trap, used bait. I knew they couldn't resist, and I got them all. Well, what are you going to do with them, Jesus asked. Satan replied, oh, I'm going to have fun. I'm going to teach them how to marry and divorce each other, how to hate and abuse each other, how to drink and smoke and curse. I'm going to teach them how to invent guns and bombs and kill each other. I'm going to have a really great time with them. What will you do when you're done with them, Jesus asked. Oh, I'll kill them. Satan glared proudly. How much do you want for them, Jesus asked. Oh, you don't want those people? They ain't no good? Why, you'll take them and they'll just hate you. They'll spit on you and curse you. They'll even kill you. You don't want those people. How much, he asked again. Satan looked at Jesus and sneered. All your blood, all your tears, and all your life. And Jesus said, done. Then he paid the price. The pastor picked up the cage and he walked off the pulpit. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace. God's grace. Grace that is greater than all of our sin. Aren't you thankful for God's grace? Now, I could stop here. Some of you may say, Pastor, that'd be good. Go ahead and stop here. I'm not. 
some of you might be saying this. Pastor Brock, I believe that. Believe what you're saying, but Pastor Brock, what about those times when even after we're saved or even after we've accepted the free gift and the grace of Jesus Christ, what about those times in our life when life doesn't seem to go so well? Does the grace of God help them? Someone in here, I believe, needs to hear the second half of this. You have a physical affliction that never ends. Maybe you're in a season of life to where the bills just continue to come and come and come. Maybe there's issues that you're having in the home or having in the family. You're trying to walk with the Lord, but you just have these seemingly never-ending difficulties that just keep hitting you. We know that even after we experience the grace of God through salvation, Jesus Christ himself said, in this life you will have trouble. We know that hard times are going to come. And you're asking, does this word grace mean anything then? Many of you know that the Apostle Paul had a similar issue. In 2 Corinthians 12, he tells us this. A thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in weaknesses. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities in reproaches in needs in persecutions in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. What I'm referring to here, church, are those times in our life when Satan will attack us through some trial, through some difficulty, through some pain. Now notice, he cannot do it on his own. It's something that God gives permission for. God allows. We know the story of Job. Before Job experienced all the things that he went through, we know that Satan had to approach God and get permission to do that. I'm talking about those times when Satan tries to discourage us. He tries to defeat us. I'm not referring to those times when we kind of make a mess ourselves and we kind of bring upon the consequences ourselves, although God is still there for us on those times. I'm talking about those times whenever it just seems to keep hitting us and keep hitting us. What was Paul's actual thorn? That's really not the point here, although I did talk about that in a previous message. But suffice it to say, Paul's thorn was more than likely some kind of a, a physical infirmity that God, listen, God chose not to heal. In the case of Paul, and like so many others, and maybe some of you here today, God did not remove the thorn, but he let Paul to keep it in order, I believe, to give us verse Nine, but my grace is sufficient for you. How does God's grace work in hard times? When I was researching this point this week, I looked up 
the world's definition of grace. And it's interesting. Here's some of the words that the world uses for grace. Loveliness, agility, charm, attractiveness, balance, beauty, almost like a ballet dancer, just to name a few. But listen, when you're going through a major test of life, you don't need loveliness. You don't need agility. You don't need attractiveness. You don't need balance. You don't need beauty. What you need is what was promised to the Apostle Paul here in his word. What you need is the grace of God. That's what you need. The Greek word for grace is charis. And it means divine influence on the human heart. Did you get that? Divine influence on the human heart. It's God bestowing his favor. Let that sink in for just a moment. Those times when God will not eliminate the difficulty or take it out of the way, but he allows us to go through it. What we need the most is strength from above, Power and courage from above. Stamina from above. That is what God's grace is. It's divine strength, divine power and courage and stamina for the moment. I have to be honest with you. Whenever I was studying this this week, when I was thinking about God's grace and going through difficult times, I thought having grace meant that God would just somehow supernaturally eliminate the pain. Take it away. He would divinely, supernaturally just uh, remove all difficulty of the situation, and I would just kind of just, we would just float above the whole problem altogether and not even allow us to suffer. But that's not what it means. Because Jesus said we are going to go through hard times, his sufficient grace means that he will give us what we need to endure, to get us through and to still come out victorious believers in Jesus Christ. That's the grace of God. You see, the grace of God helped the Apostle Paul as he dealt with his physical weariness. As he dealt with pain, he received uh, uh, many lashes and uh, many uh, uh, physical persecutions for the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the grace of God helped the Apostle Paul deal with that. Allowed him to go on, allowed him to bear all the persecution and ultimately allowed Paul to bear the pain of death. Paul found God's grace sufficient for opposition All of his life, Paul was up against it, and all his life, God gave him the strength, the divine grace to never give in. It's what allowed Paul to write this in 2 Corinthians. We are pressed in on every side by troubles, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are hunted down, but never abandoned by God. We get knocked down, but we are not destroyed. Through suffering, our bodies continue to share in the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be seen in our bodies. Yes, we live under constant danger of death because we serve Jesus, so that the life of Jesus will be evident in our dying bodies. So we live in the face of death, but this has resulted in eternal life 
for you. How could he write that? How could he experience that? The only explanation is the grace of God. You see, I, dev- I see divine grace when I look at people like Shelley Beachy as she continues to go through what she goes through. I look at divine grace when I see someone like Gail Crawford who's gone through all that she has gone through. Reuben Mollett, Marion Shoup, Dean Burrow right now is really going through it. The ability to get through the moment God's grace. You may have said at various times in your life, God, give me grace. God, just give me grace. And with that, you thought that God's just going to take away the difficulty, that you'll somehow have that supernatural resistance to pain, and you'll just ease on through it until you get to the other side. Again, that's not how the sufficient grace of God works. When we find the strength to get through the moment, that's God's divine grace.